everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of Here's the Thing, 8-Minute Movies, a flawless introduction this time. I find it's a lot easier if I write down what I'm supposed to say, because I'm basically a puppet. Um, I'm Peter. No, no, no. You're Kieran. Oh. You're Kieran? No. Oh, no. You're Kieran. And I'm Peter. We'll, I think they can figure it out. Yeah. Um, how are you doing today on this day of all days? I don't know why I put it like that. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. I am, I am making some gin, which is because someone gave me a gin making kit as a gift. I was going to say, like, uh, usually it's, uh, I'm drinking some gin and probably not great for this time in the afternoon. Um. <laughs> yes. Um, it turns out all that's involved is dirtying up some vodka. Yeah. Uh, gin, gin as a drink has always seemed a little cheeky to me because it is just vodka with juniper berries in it. That does make it a lot better than vodka. Uh, yeah, but. It is just berry flavored vodka. Like it's, also, it's it's the Ribena of alcoholic beverages. There's other things. There's juniper berries plus whatever you like, really. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. If you want to get fancy, there's your botanicals. But mm. um, really, the criteria is vodka with juniper berries in it. Yeah. As you know, but the people listening don't i also like a gin um did you know that i i started growing my own juniper bush in order to make my own gin uh i did not know that uh, i hit a fairly major flaw in the process though and that is that juniper bushes are either male or female uh-huh. and you, you need both <laughs> in order for berries to happen and i have one so um right yeah, that's that. That project is is kind of stalled. I don't think I'm going to buy another half a dozen just on the off chance that I get the correct pairings. Right, fair enough. <laughs> but I wish you every success in your gin making project, and I uh, I hope I can try it someday. Perhaps I'll come and stand outside your house, and you can pour it out of the window into my mouth. Maybe that will happen. It seems unlikely, though. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's it's a quick process. So it's been going for about three and a bit days now, and there's only a couple of days left until I can taste this gin. You don't even have to strain the berries out, do you? It's just no, like, just shove them in. You just, <laughs> I mean, really, it just seems like a vodka cocktail <laughs> rather than rather than a specific separate alcoholic beverage. I am feeling a bit cheated. Hmm. Well, I mean, whatever, uh, whatever it is, it's it's a magical process, probably <laughs> discovered from when someone in very long ago accidentally dropped some juniper berries in their vodka for several days, <laughs> um, and then we're like, "Well, I do still want to drink," and tried it, and went, "Ooh, that's <laughs> definitely the story." I researched that. Um, I'm I'm going to take your word for it. it that sounds mm-hmm. legit to me. It's time. Well, no, no, hang on, hang on, because you're always like, "Oh, I'm fine. Thanks for asking." I'm going to ask <laughs> this time. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so fine. thrilled that it's... I asked. <laughs> in in the timeline where we're recording this, it's 
uh, early December, and I have three advent calendars. And what could be better than that? Um, four advent calendars. I actually technically have four advent calendars, but one of them isn't mine. So um, right, it's it's for someone else. But yeah, I, I, I've got the full range of things covered with advent calendars. I've got fancy chocolates, regular chocolates, and Lego. So um, what more could you want, really? Mm. Nothing. That's that's it. That's all the things a human being needs, except possibly gin. See, my um, grandparents who used to buy me an advent calendar every year were of a belief that I now understand to be in the minority, but was just very normal for me as a child. That advent calendars that included treats behind every door were just kind of over commercializing Christmas or like, <laughs> or like gimmicky. And so I just used to get one with a picture behind every door. And that was, that was the normal thing for me. I wonder if they're still available. Like I bet they're harder to get now. I, I'm sure you can, but, um, but yeah, I, I think they were, would be in the minority, but yeah, I never really realized how prevalent the, goodies inside advent calendars were until i found that everybody else just did this and and we had been just kind of cheated out of years and years <laughs> of chocolate the more we record this podcast the more i want to make a separate spin-off podcast where we explore your strange past <laughs> is that weird my past <laughs> yeah that's part of the problem <laughs> oh who um I can't remember who I was talking to somebody recently who has a like a familial advent calendar that comes out every December and like you have it's it's like a wooden thing and you have to preload it with treats or little toys and things and then and then set that up for Christmas and do it. See, I think that's weirder than my thing. It does sound I mean cuz I I definitely got one of those uh, advent calendars you were talking about where it's basically two sheets of paper that have been glued together with like yeah. little cut out doors and you open it and behind it you go oh a star, a star. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how much fun was that yeah uh, my my very religious grandmother got me one of those once and then i think it was made clear that i did not enjoy it as much as the ones with food inside <laughs> i mean I, I did it every day so i'm obviously got something out of it but um i, I think it's well i mean when you're a child you're obviously you know easier to please with like yeah. slight surprises i was discussing this with someone else earlier this week about how the prevalence of where's wally or you know where's waldo or whatever for the american listeners yeah and how the only purpose of it really is to give parents an hour and a half off <laughs> like you give the book to your children and you go look children find the tiny man find him look very carefully <laughs> mummy needs to lie down so uh, anyway we're recording the next episode I, I think quite close to this one so look forward to having this same conversation again very shortly oh um will it be exactly the same conversation uh, i could just copy paste it uh, we'll have to um, we'll have to find lots of things to do between now and the next podcast, so we have new things to talk about. I mean, I was thinking of cooking a steak tomorrow. I might be able to tell you how the gin is by that point. Ooh, yeah, all right, but only if you use words that wine tasters from the nineteen seventies would use. Like, I can't think of any. <laughs> what a terrible lead. Um, 
I, I'm thinking of the word opalescent, but like I'm mm. I'm pretty certain that's like a color. I don't think Jin has legs. <laughs> uh, I think all alcohol has legs. Isn't it to do with the sugar content? I f- I feel like that's true. The sweeter the the wine, the leggier it is. Uh, do, do you know what? Um, I'm, uh, we're going to have to abandon this thread because I know next to nothing about wine. I, I know that there are different types. Some of them are red. Some of them are white. Some of them are curious mix of both. My favorite wine is sort of orange, so I don't know where that comes in on this scale at all. Yes, I think you're right. Let's move on. You know the one, that, that sweet dessert wine that um, I discovered. And oh, then I, Yeah, right. and that's really nice. And then I, I bought two bottles of it, but I had to buy them from a wine merchant, and then I had to go there and look like I knew about wine. I, I actually... Oh, God. Um, I actually looked up how to pronounce the name of the wine online so that when <laughs> I turned up, I could just be like... Hand me my Mombosiac and uh, <laughs> not have to like sound like a pillock, like I didn't know what I was talking about. Now that wine has legs because it's very sweet and probably why it's so nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, yeah. I I just want the wine equivalent of Ribena, really. Um, <laughs> all wine is just Ribena in a different form. Discuss. Let's, but not on this podcast. <laughs> let's move on to the actual podcast in a way. It is time to introduce the concept of the podcast. And in excellent news, it's your turn, so I don't have to do it. All right. I am forced to explain to you that Kieran is very much in love with the film The Thing, uh, has watched it for years and years and years, all the time barely a week i would say even barely a day goes by when he does not watch the thing i on the other hand have seen the thing a couple of times uh mainly on account of being friends with kieran um and uh, i am not so familiar with the film it's not really my genre it's not really usually my thing and so we decided, or rather Kieran decided, that he would cut up the film into eight-minute chunks, and we would watch each eight-minute chunk and then discuss it in some detail uh, before moving on to the next eight-minute chunk for the next podcast. As a little side game, whenever one of us says the phrase, the thing and is not talking about the name of the film, the monster in the film, or this little game that I'm describing, we have a little bell which dings like this. The thing dinger is done whenever someone says the thing out of the context I describe, and in some way the other person is supposed to feel bad about it. I'm still entirely sure that you can't conjugate ding into dung. (laughs) I'll continue to do so (laughs) until the police arrive. I was going to say, I'm going to bring a legal action. Yeah, I do want you to know that uh, at the start you said that's not my thing and I was going to ding you for it. But then I thought I hadn't explained the rules yet. (laughs) 
I'm fully aware of it. That's why I kind of got slightly hesitant and yeah, flustered I, around I, that I point. Yeah, I noticed your, your hesitation. I was like, yeah. I can't dung my dinger. Oh, Jesus. Uh, until you've explained the rules. I mean, even though this is the 10th episode of a 13-episode podcast. Yes. So... <laughs> So before we get into the actual discussion, you usually have a topic to discuss that is not directly related to the eight minutes we're about to talk about. Do you have one today? Yes, I do. I do have one in this section, which we call Let's Not Talk About The Thing. Today, I'm going to harp on at you about Kurt Russell. All right. So, Kurt Russell is an actor who's had a prolific career. Uh, he's the son of actor Bing Russell, and he started television acting at the age of 12 in the Western series The Travels of Hamie McFeeters in 1963. That's a name you could get away with in the 1960s, but probably less so now. Whew. In the late 60s, he signed a 10-year contract with the Walt Disney Company, where he went on to become the studio's top star of the 70s. Creepily, in 1966, Walt Disney's last words written down on a piece of paper were just Kurt Russell. Um, I, I genuinely did not know that. That's that, very, that, very yeah, weird. It's, it, they hired him on the basis of that. I mean, but it does seem a little bit like a voodoo curse. I don't know. <laughs> what if... Uh... <laughs> oh, the, the, next, the next four words were, um, was yeah. the one who killed me. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Russell is the thing. You must destroy him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a weird fact. After a successful run of family films with Disney, he went on to a moderately successful baseball career, although a shoulder injury made him retire and return to acting. He first worked with John Carpenter on the 1979 made-for-television film Elvis. Carpenter directed, and Kurt Russell played Elvis. His collaboration with John Carpenter allowed him to shake off his good boy image and reinvent himself as a tough leading man in films like Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, and, of course, The Thing. He's appeared in over a hundred film or TV roles. Did you know he was the voice of Copper the Dog from The Fox and the Hound? I did not. Mm. Interestingly, and probably most disappointingly, he's never received an Oscar, not even a nomination for one. Mm. Very sad. Yeah, I have to say that I don't believe I have watched that many films with Kurt Russell in it. We talked a little bit before about uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I did not mm. even remember that he was in it. I, I remember so little about that film. I've ended up watching Big Trouble in Little China a lot recently. Like I've seen it maybe four times in the last month, and it's it's a lot better than I remembered. Like It's very good. One of the things I like about it is that Kurt Russell is not the hero in the film. He's the sidekick, but the film is presented in such a way that he seems like the hero, which is a really interesting twist. Hmm. I'm just looking through his Wikipedia page now, and uh, he apparently also plays the voice of Elvis Presley in Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I guess he does a really good Elvis impression. I sort of, I haven't seen the Elvis film because it was like a made for TV one. So I, I sort of want to see if it's on streaming or something so we can <laughs> see what a good Elvis impersonator he is. I think that he's just gone under my radar because I have barely seen any of these films. I think mm. I maybe saw Vanilla Sky once that he's apparently in. I didn't see tombstone i didn't see um 
death proof. I didn't see uh, Furious 7, The Hateful Eight. I did not see any of these films. Stargate I saw. Um, I don't remember him being in it. Yeah, he plays Colonel Jack O'Neill in Stargate, who went on to be played by Richard Dean Anderson in the Stargate SG-1 TV series. Mm. Hmm. So I, I've probably seen him in The Thing more than any other film <laughs> looking at this. Maybe TV series, but even, yeah, looking through this list, no, I, I just have not really seen him in stuff. You mentioned The Hateful Eight, and that's quite an interesting film to me as well, because in many ways, The Hateful Eight is a non-alien themed remake of The Thing. Oh, you've mentioned this before. Yeah, yeah, I, I quite like The Hateful Eight. And the similarities, I mean, aside from the fact that they reuse a lot of the music, like even the main theme from The Thing, mm. um, it's basically a bunch of people trapped in a frozen in cabin. And they're trying to work out who amongst them is the bad person who has ill intent towards everyone else. And yeah, like the similarities are pretty clear. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll get, I'm sure I'll force you to watch it at some point, but it is, it is a very good film. But yeah, I mean, he is an absolutely prolific actor and he really has quite a good range as well. Do you know what his latest role is? Uh, not off the top of my head. Uh, he plays Santa Claus in the Christmas oh, of Chronicles course. 2. Of course, yes. No, he yeah, he's re- repeating his role as Santa in the Christmas Chronicles 1. Um. <laughs> I did not watch either of those, but apparently uh, two years ago, a film called The Christmas Chronicles came out where yeah. he plays Santa Claus, and a sequel is out this year. Yeah, I did. I did actually know that. <laughs> Has it been um, released yet? Let's see. Um, I'm not sure. I ha- um I haven't seen either of them, although I sort of want to. <laughs> That's a Chris Columbus film. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was released about a couple of weeks ago. Well, uh, I mean, yeah, you would try and release it in time for Christmas, wouldn't you? <laughs> right. Let's move on to a new section of the podcast. This is the one. Uh, when I say new, I mean different from the precedent one, not something new that we're introducing now mm. i mean i i thought that was clear i i just wanted to be extra clear um this is the section of the podcast where we talk about the questions that you had last time fortunately you only had one question last time and it's a fairly easy answer uh you asked how long does it take to get frost by outside in antarctica and depending on various factors including how well insulated you are you know what the actual weather is uh it takes about 5 minutes mm. which is not that long no do you know the uh, lowest temperature on earth was ever recorded in antarctica at the russian vostok station it certainly doesn't surprise me oh, well could you act surprised it's a podcast no i want you to deliver more surprising facts from now on thank you all right um Did you know the hottest temperature on Earth was ever recorded in Antarctica? Um, I don't think that's true. No, no, that was a lie. Okay, okay, I can make this fact spicier for you. What do you think the lowest air temperature ever recorded on Earth was? Before I answer this, I want you to remind me what the temperature of absolute zero is. I think it's minus 257. Hang on, I'll go and check. Right. Just so that I don't say something stupid like minus 300. It's minus 273. I wasn't far off. Okay. 
I think then the coldest temperature ever recorded was minus 150. Oh shit, you fucking undercut me. Like it's it's minus eighty-nine. Minus okay. hundred and fifty. Jesus Christ. Like the oxygen would start precipitating out of the air. I don't know. I just thought it would be something more impressive than than oh, still you, in double figures. You are th- I, I tell you what, if you were outside and it was minus ninety, which for you know only Americans is minus a hundred and thirty Fahrenheit. <laughs> fucking hell <laughs> I d- look I didn't think there'd be like a bunch of um, scientists standing around a thermometer going oh that is very cold isn't it and I'm surprised we've got a thermometer that goes down this low actually like, um, um, we should probably light a fire or something um, no, I, d- I imagine they use some sort of instrument at uh, a, a, a distance to, to measure this <laughs> Well, I mean, it, um, it's attached to a research station, so they may just go outside with a thermometer. <laughs> One of the things I like is that you you can get live weather data from Vostok Station. It's transmitted. Okay. And one of the websites I was looking at on has the actual temperature and the feels-like temperature. And I'm like, it's minus 73 Celsius, and it feels like minus 90. I'm like, there's got to be a threshold at which you can't, tell that difference right if i went outside and it was minus 70 i would think it's fucking freezing and i'm dying like i wouldn't be able to go "Mm, it feels a bit more like minus 90 i mean there's got to be a a real human element to that feels like temperature stuff you know what i mean uh you know what the temperature is currently at uh, vostok station uh minus 31 very close uh it's minus 33 (laughs) according to what i'm looking at uh legitimately i didn't have that open but i was doing research on what the average temperatures are in antarctica earlier this month and i sort of thought it was probably you know their early winter temperature Mm, but it does feel like minus 41 so (laughs) put a coat on (laughs) wear a hat if you're going outside so that your ears don't fall off Oh, we haven't really talked about how cold it is there before, but if you imagine it's the 1980s, they have their little shacks, but all they're wearing are like fairly thin insulated coats. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be outside too much. But I mean, the history of Antarctic exploration goes back hundreds of years. I can't even imagine going there in a boat made of wood. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Before the invention of synthetic fibres. Whatever's there, I don't want it enough to go there to get it. Well, the two things they really wanted from it were stuff they could name after other people and a quick path across the world. Hmm. That is my question answered. <laughs> At length, with numerous digressions. Yes. All right, it's time for everyone's favorite section of the podcast. Let's talk about the thing, the bit where we actually talk about the movie. As always, last time I asked you what happened next, and you said someone comes in from outside and is interrupted by Norris having a heart attack. Yeah. I'm going to say that I got this 33% right. I mean, you you work or someone does come in from outside, and Norris does have a heart attack, so... It's just that a bunch of quite important stuff happens in between those two things mm. that, that I totally forgot about. And if we check our infection tracker here, we've got who's infected, Norris and Blair, who's maybe infected, Windows, Knowles, Palmer and Childs. 
Who's not infected? McCready, Gary, Copper, and Clark. And who's dead? Bennings and Fuchs. Indeed. So now it's time for us to listen to minutes one hour and 12 minutes to one hour and 20 minutes of The Thing. Carry on not doing this at home and just listening to this and then maybe watching the film afterwards. Do that. Do that instead. Okay, we're back. How this works is I have a bulleted list of action points that summarize 20 to 30 seconds of action from each of these minutes. And I'm going to read them out loud. And if you want to discuss them, chip in. And if not, I will just keep going until I run out of steam. All right. Go for it. The men argue about letting McCready back inside. The main line I wrote down here was... um, Nothing human could have made their way back without a guideline. And I don't know if I believe that. They have been gone for 45 minutes, I think, at this point. And the storm is howling outside. And Knowles admits he cut the guideline. And McCready has managed to find his way back on his own. I sort of agree with you in that it seems unlikely, but not impossible. Yeah, this seems to be more about child's suspicions and general dislike yeah. for McCready more than anything else. Palmer says he wants to let him in to blow him away, mm. um, and Charles just wants to leave him to die outside. This is interesting because Palmer seemed to trust McCready earlier. I guess, obviously, he's completely flipped his opinion now that he's been lost outside for a little while. Yes, and uh, the whole underwear... Oh, not 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 underwear. Let me try that again. Uh, <laughs> the, the McCready pants scenario, which is definitely a shoegaze band. Yeah, uh, and the whole ripped clothes scenario is what I I should say. Yes, yes. McCready breaks in through the supply window. They probably should have seen that coming, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I they did nail up all the doors, but not the um windows. Uh, well, you know, not windows. The guy. <laughs> that was fairly clear um it's sort of interesting really i'm not a hundred percent sure why they start nailing all the doors and windows up yeah and they definitely should have paid more attention to the windows because i think this is now the third point in the film where a window has been used (laughs) (laughs) like broken in that way i mean maybe you only got so much wood you know (laughs) the men try to open the door to the supply room but it's locked McCree has the keys. Does he have the keys? When did he, he get the keys? Um, it happens off screen, but we can assume it happens when he took command from Gary. Right. Gary has okay. the keys at that point. This is the last mention of the keys. So that that's it. No more keys for the rest of the movie. We hope you've enjoyed playing along with the keys game at home. <laughs> Child smashes down the door with an axe. This is Keith David with a real axe on a real door, which is why you notice everyone desperately scuttling out of the way when he starts swinging it. (laughs) That would really hurt if it hit you, and (laughs) they didn't want that to happen. It's one of those moments where they act realistically because it's just real. (laughs) Because they're very scared about being accidentally hit with an axe. McCready has a bundle of dynamite and a flare. And uh, he gets dangerously close with that flare a lot of the times to the yeah, dynamite during this scene, I feel. Yeah. Good acting or just accidental, who can tell? Mm. Um, this is possibly off topic, but for the rest of the scene, I can't unsee the absolutely gigantic box of milk duds next to him on the shelf. <laughs> like, 
how many milk duds do they need to get through an Antarctic winter? I'm absolutely not emailing the British Antarctic Survey to find out. Well, how many how many Maltesers do you take with you? <laughs> <laughs> don't make promises you can't keep. <laughs> the men disarm themselves so he won't blow up the base. Fair enough, really. I was thinking about. Uh, I see the bit I couldn't remember is how the situation de-escalates, mm. and uh, I suppose the threat of dynamite is uh, kind of a way to do that, just because everyone has to calm down or blow up. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I thought that it was maybe maybe it went straight to um, Norris having an issue in my prediction. But the thing that I couldn't square off in my head was how does it go from them being highly suspicious of McCready to be just completely distracted by the Norris situation? And I think it's probably just a combination of this dynamite and what's about to happen that that kind of de-escalates things. Why do you think they have dynamite? Uh, I don't know. They might have to blow up um, a bit of ice. (laughs) <laughs> to clear it out the way uh, maybe I, I think that's i think that's the intent yeah um certainly they had it in the thing from another world um where they were using thermite charges to try to get down to the ufo i can imagine situations where geologists might want to use it for sampling or whatever but do they have that on antarctic bases kieran i'm not emailing them anymore i'm not bothering scientists (laughs) with an itemized list of things found in the movie the thing what you said things oh sorry i thought you were doing it for the movie the thing which no no um, the one before that oh god um i hate this game This is like one of those things, like when you paint your nails with that stuff to stop you biting them, you know. <laughs> it's like a version therapy. Every time I say the thing, I expect someone to ding a bell. <laughs> well, what's like the opposite of Pavlov's dog? Yeah, every time a bell rings. No, wait. <laughs> every time every I time say the thing, I expect to be whipped. You, ex- you expect a bell ring. <laughs> And every time a bell rings, you reflexively say the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure that's how it works. Norris and Knowles rush McCready, and he fights them off. Now, in this little bit of the scene and the bit immediately afterwards, Kurt Russell had to retake this scene a number of times. Can you guess why? Uh, Is it because he either drops the flare or drops the dynamite or touches the flare to the dynamite or something along those lines. I mean, you're in the right area. It's because the flares only last for 90 seconds. Ah, So he'd have his flare lit. They'd do a little bit of fighting. He'd get through some of the dialogue and the flare would go out. And right, then they'd have okay. to start all over again with a fresh flare. I was wondering how long those flares last for because they have to last for a reasonable length of time to be useful but i can mm. imagine that they had to burn themselves out yeah speaking of the flares as well when norris grabs him they had to be extremely careful so that he wouldn't get set on fire by the flare mm. uh it was a good attempt i feel like um, yes yeah, they they almost get him they almost get him yeah it's kind of a velociraptor approach <laughs> clever girl yeah norris collapses to the floor and stops breathing 
So yes, he does have an episode that interrupts the proceedings. I, I just forgot all about that stuff that happens first. Now, given that you, I, and literally everyone else on Earth know that Norris is a thing at this point, mm. what is going through the thing's mind? Um, Why is it doing this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, my interpretation is that if it in- imitates someone perfectly, then it has to imitate all of the flaws as well. Um, and so that's why we saw the chest pains and stuff beforehand. Well, see, if if, if the thing that's about to happen didn't happen, then I'd say maybe he's trying to make himself seem more plausible by having a, like a genuine heart episode. <laughs> I was going to say, the only thing I can, the only conclusion I can take from this is sort of that it, yeah, it is. It does just copy you exactly, even with your flaws. And mm. um, Norris's faulty heart has let him down at this point. So it's like, oh, what is? I better go along with this and see what happens, you know, rather than this being a three-dimensional chess move. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's the only way I can interpret it. But then, uh, what I understand less is what happens next, and we'll get to that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Macready gathers everyone in medical. Copper straddles Norris and starts CPR. So this um, thump the chest at the start CPR is called a precordial thump. And um, it's used quite wrongly here. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, it can only be used within the first few seconds of certain types of cardiac arrest and generally shouldn't be done by an untrained person. They had a problem with lots of films doing this in the 80s and 90s where people would just assume the best way to start CPR is just whack them on the chest. And what that does is uh, kill them. So <laughs> <laughs> Or at least make the situation worse. You can break a rib. Yeah, that's not good. Don't try this at home, kids. MacReady defends himself and is suspicious of Knowles. Clark steals a scalpel. Windows brings over a defibrillator, which Copper tries. Thinking about this, I was actually surprised the defibrillator was in common use by this point. Like, Obviously common enough for people to know what it was in a film without it being explained to them. But apparently they've been around since the 1930s. All right. Hmm. Oh, here we go, lads. Suddenly, Norris's chest snaps open, revealing a row of sharp, bony teeth. They bite through Copper's arms, and he falls away, screaming. All right, so there's a few things to talk about here. Um, we are going to go through this in excruciating detail, so feel free to start, and I <laughs> we can get on with it. Okay, so just talking about it generally before we get into the specifics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to me, the this effect is the effect that holds up least well in the film it mainly and i don't know how much of this is actually intentional or not but at the moment it it mainly appears to me comical the arm biting doesn't look particularly believable to me uh and uh it's it, i i love the moment don't get me wrong it's just the, the moment where the film kind of strays briefly into just kind of silliness yeah i um i would say in terms of the one which has aged the least well it's probably the second 
for me. There's another one coming up, which I think you've forgotten about. For me and a lot of people, this is ab- like the iconic shot of the film, mm-hmm. right? I mean, everyone remembers this. Charlie Hallahan, who plays Norris, says that he travels a lot and wherever he went in the world after this, someone would always ask him about this scene, no matter what other films he'd been in. <laughs> it was always that bit from the thing that someone would talk to him about. I, I mean, I understand why you think, you know, it doesn't necessarily hold up, but I will get to that in a little bit in my lengthy explanation of how this whole effect shot works. All right. So, so the other aspect of this I want to talk about quickly is what, is the thing's plan here why does it decide this is the moment with everyone gathered around and watching that it should strike i think it's what mccready infers later is that the thing only ever sort of breaks its disguise when it's attacked yeah and it's got a dude on top of it straddling it and electrocuting it over and over Mm. um yeah that that was my interpretation that the only plausible explanation as to why it would do this is that the defibrillation is hurting it and it's just kind of doing it more as a re- reflex than anything else yeah it, it it comes into what kurt russell says later on and that every little piece is its own individual animal trying to protect itself mm. It's never really explored, but maybe the electricity is disrupting it in some way. Because mm-hmm. it's probably seeing the CPR as not that bad, really. But also, you've got to remember that he doesn't have a pulse, so it, it is dying at this mm-hmm. point. So unless it does something, simulating simulating the heart attack is fine, but what where's it was endgame from here? Is it going to follow through? Is it just going to die? I don't think that's on its agenda. Does that matter though? Does uh, does it being able to uh, reproduce human biological functions uh, is that necessary for it to live? I mean, judging by the other things that have kind of come back after being thoroughly burnt and everything, yet yeah, that's not necessary. It could, it, it could in theory just die and still be alive as the thing. No, 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 actually quite right. You make a very good point there. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but it does, you know, it could just do this as a disguise. I think it does seem to just be acting on instinct at this point. I think that the attack on it has sort of sent it into a panic if right. that can be used to describe it. Yeah, I think I think that's plausible enough. Hmm. To go back to how this whole thing works, Charlie Hallahan, the actor who plays Norris, spent 10 days sitting for molds of his face and body. When they went to film this effect, he spent eight hours in makeup in order to blend his chest into a mechanical unit, a mechanical mm-hmm. chest that's on the table above him. In the documentary, he says he's remarkably impressed with how accurate it was. He said he could even recognize his own chest hair pattern in the pattern they'd produced. Mm-hmm. The chest contains a mechanism designed by effects technician Archie Gillett. Um, it's basically a hydraulic ram that can open and shut. When it opens, it rips the foam latex torso open, exposing the razor-sharp acrylic teeth that are inside, which can then slam shut again. Above him on the table, there's a little bit of misdirection going on. Uh, the actor who plays Copper, Richard Dysart, has been replaced with a double amputee actor called Joe Carone. He'd lost yeah. both of his arms just below the elbow in an industrial accident. The makeup artist built two replica arms and attached them onto his stumps. 
the fake arms were made from jello and gelatin tubes with fake blood in and dental wax to act as bones. So that you don't notice that there's been a change of actor, he's actually wearing a mask modeled off of Richard Dysart's face, which has been glued over his own. Glued? He's, he's got a different face glued on? Yeah. It's a mask. Okay. <laughs> wow. I find it a little bit morally questionable that Joker isn't credited or that he'd want to go through something simulating the trauma that he'd obviously already been through. But I suppose at least it's work. Um, <laughs> it feels slightly amoral to me, but fine, whatever. It was the mm. 80s. So obviously what happens is his fake arms go in. Uh, the hydraulic press slams shut, bites through all the fake tissue and everything. Uh, he pulls away screaming and then with a couple of cuts we're back to everybody else in the room going back to your nitpick um if i had to nitpick and that is sort of the point of this podcast um i've always been slightly annoyed by the way the bones snap off way above the point where they're actually bitten in the way that human bones generally do not right but this was a one take only deal and obviously it's easy to sit here and nitpick 40 years later i mean yeah uh, it's still an excellent shot i'm i mean this just blew people away at the time when they saw it because never seen anything like it Mm. yeah i mean i don't i i'm not saying it's it's terrible or anything i'm just saying it's one of the things that i think uh is more obviously yeah (laughs) (laughs) is more obviously an effect uh and more obviously kind of fake than than other things in in the film but i still think that it's a it's a real good moment but i do find it a little bit funny (laughs) (laughs) tendrils and fluid burst from the open chest cavity and a spidery creature with norris's face rises up to writhe on the ceiling so um the tendrils that are thrashing around here are made from urethane being operated from inside the table by someone whipping them back and forth yeah um the burst of fluid here is actually the second take of it because the first time there was an issue which um caused as rob Bettine put it an effect like a las vegas fountain (laughs) (laughs) Uh, resetting this for the second take took several hours (laughs) (laughs) um yeah this this whole part of the effect i think works much better the only thing that uh I do think that Norris's head here has kind of a goofy expression. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the the heads and faces in this film are always going to fall slightly into the uncanny valley. Yeah, but by the standards of films at the time, yeah. it's pretty spot on. I mean, if you go and look at any other film where they're modelling someone's face, like The Howling or whatever, it's very similar work. Yeah, I mean it's fine. I I I found the head actually to be quite believable. Mostly, mm. it it it's, it it just had a weird look in its <laughs> eyes. It's like slightly cross-eyed or something. In this bit, uh, it's probably annoyed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the creature here is being operated by wires uh, through a concealed hole in the fake ceiling above it. Uh, it actually, speaking of the heads, it actually has six interchangeable ones with different radio-controlled expressions constructed by special effects artist Robert E. Worthington. I personally find this creature particularly grotesque because it's just so close to being a human. It's got Norris's face, a whole mm-hmm. secondary Norris's face, 
where remember the real Norris, the real Norris's face is still on the table down below him, yeah. with a stack of dangling organs and spindly legs. Yeah, I find this one particularly grim. What makes it worse is that it's hairy. His hair carries on down its neck and covers the whole thing. That that I just find incredibly off-putting. If it wasn't so hairy, it would probably be all right. Yeah, <laughs> a bit less hairy, you wouldn't mind making out with it. But as it is. MacReady sets it on fire with the flamethrower. Probably a good idea. Seems wise. On the gurney, Norris's head stretches away from his body on a line of gooey substances. Yeah, I think this head, uh, even though I, I don't think the other head was unrealistic, I think this head feels a lot more plausible to me. Yeah, I think this bit holds up a bit better. Um, yeah. Again, six different Norris heads were sculpted and built for this scene. It took months before they thought the effect was ready to be filmed. The expressions on the heads are radio-controlled, but the eyes are operated from underneath with a rod. Right. Uh, the stretchy neck part is achieved with a steel pole, which is concealed in the center of the neck and pushed from off-screen. The innards of the neck are constructed from a mix of things more or less thrown together at random to see how they looked, including jam, mayonnaise, carbapol, and paint thinner. Mm. The, Delicious. Yeah, they just tried a whole bunch of different things that they thought would look gooey as it stretched. The flesh itself, according to Rob Bettine, is made out of foam rubber, melted plastic, and bubblegum. Yeah, it, it, I would say the that bit does look a bit plasticky, but because it's a weird creature, you don't really mind. There's an amazing anecdote Rob Bettine tells at this point about the filming of this scene, where obviously it's a single shot take. They only get one go at it, and if they've been preparing it for months... So they get it all set up, and Rob fills the neck with this horrible concoction, including paint thinner. And just as they're about to film it, John Carpenter calls for a slight change to the scene for continuity, because McCready just set the thing on fire, right? Mm -hmm. So there should be some fire in the shot. So a special effects technician sets up a fire bar under the camera, and a fire bar is basically a pipe with little holes drilled in it, and it's filled with propane, and like you know, it has little fires coming out of it. Yeah, I, I actually um, am familiar with this concept. Do you know how I'm familiar with this concept? How? Uh, because once when I was in LA, I accidentally walked onto a film set. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I uh, I was just wandering around LA because I was bored and had some time on my hands. Um, and I just rounded a corner and I was like, there's a lot of police and firemen <laughs> uh, on this corner well it's probably fine and i keep on walking and then i turn the corner and there's a kind of crashed helicopter in the street <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like either something very bad has happened or i've just walked onto a film set and uh, <laughs> given how calm everyone is i think i've walked onto a film set <laughs> and uh, then I walked past a kind of bus shelter mm. under which uh, they were storing a lot of propane tanks. <laughs> um, and there were kind of, uh, the, there were pipes leading from those towards the helicopter. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. So they're going to use that to make it look like it's on fire. And then as I left the set, uh, I turned around and looked and they were doing a test of that effect. They kind of turned on the propane tanks and did a test of the effect and the whole thing went up on fire. It's very impressive. <laughs> 
Yeah, one of my lasting memories from trips to LA is the posters everywhere saying, we filmed this film here and it brought in loads and loads of money for the LA economy. Please stop being so annoyed that all we do is film films here and interrupt your day every day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I can't even imagine what it's like to live there. I mean, like, um, was it the Fox Plaza building in, in LA, which of course is famously Nakatomi Plaza from Die Hard where they, they literally blew out sugar glass windows on the on the top <laughs> floor and let them rain down all around when they were filming it. Uh, yeah, anecdotes aside, John Carpenter has decided that this scene needs fire in it, right? Which wasn't planned originally. So they yeah. set up a fire bar under the camera to spray fire. And as we said, it's a little pipe filled with propane, which is then gets set on fire. So it takes a few minutes to get this all set up. And the technician goes in to light it with like a striker, like a clicky bar thing. Mm-hmm. And it's taken him a few goes to get it lit. All the while it's spraying propane out, which is mixing with the paint thinner fumes from the neck and spreading into the air. Oh, no. So when he does get it to light, there's suddenly an eight-foot fireball in the enclosed studio set. And the irreplaceable puppet is completely on fire. So they all have to rush in and put it out, and thankfully no one was hurt and it wasn't too badly damaged. Although, just to reset for this took hours. (laughs) Wow. I just love the idea of that. Just click, 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 and then suddenly everything is aflame. <laughs> <laughs> Norris's head falls onto the floor and stretches out a tendril to lash onto the desk. The rest of the body burns. There's a lot of, that is goofy. I feel about <laughs> this whole scene. It's like the it's the only scene in the film that I think that I just think is more funny than it is horrifying <laughs> because the, there's the whole trying to drag the head along with the long tongue tongue it just it just looks so silly i'm not saying it looks bad it just looks very funny its efforts to escape are, are kind of silly really they, they, yeah. they, it's almost cute i don't know um. <laughs> yeah i i've got to think that some of the kind of funny aspects of this were intentional. Mm. I, I think you were supposed to be kind of horrified, uh, uh, but also finding certain aspects of this funny. That, that's that's my interpretation, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, as the head falls from the gurney onto the floor, uh, there's a hole cut in the desk and it's being lowered gently on a rod. Um <laughs> the whipping tendril that comes out and lashes onto the desk is achieved as the earlier shots were with reverse shots. So basically they retract the cord in and then flip the footage. So it looks like it's grabbing on. And when it's making its way across the floor, it's uh, being gently dragged on a fishing line. <laughs> <laughs> the men bring in fire extinguishers, but McCready makes them wait to put it out. Why is he making them wait here? Actually? Uh, I think he just wants to be absolutely sure that it's dead. Um, Again, they've sort of seen that fire isn't necessarily that effective, but probably more fire better than less. I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. As they put out the fire, Norris's head hides under the desk and grows spider-like legs and eyes on stalks. So, um, how do you think this effect is done? I think you can probably guess. Um, It could be backwards. 
Uh, it's actually um, set on a false floor with the eyes and the legs being pushed up from below. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Mm. I was going to say that it would maybe be easier to achieve if they started out and the wood dragged back into it and then <laughs> they reversed it. Mm. As the men watch the burned body of Norris, the head tries to escape out of the door. I was going to try and say that without laughing. <laughs> it is a very funny moment, though. Mm. When it's under the desk peeping out, its feet are fixed to the floor and it's being operated from behind by a puppeteer. Right. Uh, when it tries to escape, it's actually mounted on a remote-controlled car. And the legs are attached to cams, which are attached to the motor. So as it rolls forwards, the legs wiggle up and down. It works. Like I, I find that whole thing pretty convincing. Yeah, it is. It is a. It is a good little effect. I like that. Yeah. But yeah, again, it is just a, a funny moment where you just kind of see it in the background of the shot, scuttling away. I, I've seen this film a lot of times in the cinema, and there's a shot in this moment where they are looking towards Norris's burning body, horrified, and mm. it scuttles past them out of the door, and. Everyone laughs. I don't. Yeah. I don't know if, if that was the response in the eighties, <laughs> but yeah, it is hilarious now. <laughs> yeah, because it's not as we say. It's definitely not the effect because that holds up. Mm. It, uh, that's fine. Like it, it, I, I buy it. It's, it's just it's the, it's the juxtaposition. I think of the horrified expressions and the yeah. <laughs> if it's, it had a comedy sound effect, it would be hilarious. There's something that is just very good comic timing about it yeah yeah really good palmer notices it and mccready burns it with the flamethrower so palmer's got his famous line here of you gotta be fucking kidding yeah Um, i think we've brushed on this before but i feel like we're going to be talking about that line a bit more in the next uh set of moments really interesting Mm -hmm. um Kurt Russell considers this the best line in the entire movie, and uh, when it comes up in the commentary, he absolutely cracks up. Interestingly, uh, this line is one that used to get cut out a lot from the TV edit because of the swearing, Uh. which ironically makes the whole scene much darker by removing the comic element. I mean, who's watching this film uh, and was like, well, this was all fine until (laughs) someone said fucking? (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know what you mean i mean the thing never really made it onto tv beyond like one o'clock in the morning anyway i don't know why they bothered Uh, what were they thinking later in the rec room mccready wants windows and palmer to tie everybody up um I can't help but notice that they've got an Atari 2600 in the background there. Fantastic. Um, I think maybe this is something, again, that's worth talking about more in the next podcast. But I do question possibly the wisdom of getting everyone tied up at this point, given what could be about to go down. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. I'm sure it'll come up again. Yeah. in the next podcast but maybe it's not the best idea mm. <laughs> i i would have tied everyone up individually and separately that's what i would have done i think mm. at this point, if i'd have known what they know clark tries to get closer to mccready charles refuses to be tied up but sees how serious mccready is about killing him if he isn't 
it's sort of like a turning point for McCready here because he's seen that they're willing to kill him and he's willing to kill them back. It's one of those points where, you know, have you lost your humanity? Right. Yeah, I'm going to get into that a little bit um, later, actually, after we talk about the next bit, I guess. Mm. Clark rushes McCready, but he shoots him in the forehead. He just kind of does this very coldly. <laughs> like mm. There's very little reaction on his part to what he just did as well. I I actually strongly disagree with you there. If you replay it, I think the shooting is more like a reflex than anything else. Clark moves suddenly and he shoots him. Yeah. But if you look at McCready's face after he shoots him, he looks um, startled and hurt. Like he can't really believe what's happened and what he's done. I think he's, if you read it as, um, you know, impassive, I read it more like shell shock, maybe. Uh, I, I I did not notice that about that, but maybe, yeah, next time I watch, I'll, I'll look out for that. Yeah, the, I, there's definitely a look on his face that I was surprised by because I'm, I'm normally in that scene. I look at the falling body of Clark, yeah. but I was trying to pay particular attention to McCready during this rewatch. Okay. Of course, this is the moment that Clark loses his hat. Rest in peace, Clark's hat. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, the hat. Yeah, so I'll, as I say, I will, uh, I'll take your word for it there and have a look at it for it next time. But uh, I think this is also, so far at least, Clark seems to be the only one on the base who dies of something other than the thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that yeah. for now. I mean, there's uh, there's the Norge guy at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Norge. <laughs> <laughs> Who gets uh, shot. Um, but that he is not part of the space crew, so I don't think he counts for that. And as we discussed in some of the other screenplays for the thing, people meet other deaths, but they don't get filmed. So I guess they don't count. Technically, this shot was very difficult to achieve because he shoots Clark at point-blank range, and that close, even a blank can kill you. They had to use a quarter load of gunpowder just for the flash and thought that meant there wouldn't be enough force to propel anything out of the gun. Mm. We cut to a little later. Palmer ties up the bodies of Copper and Clark. So um, Richard Mazur, the actor who played Clark, he ended up with that big bullet wound appliance on his face for three days, and he remembered that he was continuously drawing stairs when he went to the commissary to get lunch <laughs> because he had a gigantic bullet hole in his forehead. Yes, I got shot. What of it? <laughs> Please sell me a sandwich. McCready is trimming a wire with a knife. So at this point in the director's commentary, John Carpenter says that the blood test scene is why he wanted to do the whole film. Mm. When everyone is tied up except him and Windows, McCready explains his plan. So we've discussed this before, and I think he pretty much makes it clear that seeing the head try to escape on its own has made him think that every little piece of the thing will act individually to protect its own life. So getting some blood out of somebody, if you burn the blood, the blood will try to escape. It makes sense. It's not as visually interesting, but I wonder what would happen if he just tried burning them with the hot wire. I mean, would they react? I mean, because we know the thing maintains its cover where possible, like the dog gets shot and they have to do surgery on the dog to fix it. Mm. So the dog is injured but doesn't transform automatically. 
I wonder yeah. if it's literally just because the blood is a small portion of tissue from the main body. Yeah, um, I think there may be a whole thing going on here of... Um, yeah, very good. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think there may be an element of it, it may be able to do more advanced reasoning when there's more of it together. Perhaps. Yeah, that's that's what that's how I always see this scene. That uh, you know, if you get like one or two cells of it, then it's probably not going to be able to do much in the way of joined up thinking, right? But yeah. when you've got like a whole body's worth, it can be like, listen, guys, look, it's in our best interest to let some of you die, so that the bulk of us can carry on imitating this person or whatever. Yes. Yeah, I think I, I I'm inclined to think that's how it works, and uh, that again with the with norris earlier uh because of it uh, norris being incapacitated and it getting uh electrocuted it was maybe disrupted in some way and so wasn't mm. able to follow through with that plan and so kind of ended up lashing out remember the head only tries to escape once the body has been flamethrowered like so i think it's you've seen the end coming for the rest of those cells yes. so it's like well let's see what we can do here yeah, I mean the jig is up by that point anyway, so it's it's just like well we don't need to kind of pretend to still be Norris at this point, so let's just try and break out and see if we can hide. Absolutely. We're going to draw a little bit of everyone's blood and see if it tries to escape from a hot needle. I really like the shot here as he's explaining this because it's a slow pan across everyone's face like the drawing room scene of a murder mystery. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that's really what this is, isn't it? They um got everyone together in the lounge and MacReady is presenting his case. Yeah. Windows puts a petri dish under Knowles' thumb and moves a scalpel towards it. And that's where we end this episode. Um, I would say you've got an unfair advantage here on figuring out what happens <laughs> next. <laughs> yeah, I have a pretty clear idea of what happens next. They're going to do the tests, <laughs> is what happens immediately next uh, and if you want me to be more specific about it i will say um so it's a good plan I, I believe that there are some aspects of the execution that will leave something to be desired and <laughs> will maybe be the subject of some discussion uh, next time and i think that palmer is just about to be revealed to be a thing see it's interesting you remembered palmer is a thing at this point because we were talking about it in the last podcast and you didn't seem to have him on your list. It's actually your fault, this one. <laughs> Is it? Uh, yeah, I think I might have remembered by this point anyway without your help, maybe, but I'm not 100% certain. But the reason why I am pretty sure is because much, much earlier, several episodes ago, you mentioned something. We were talking about that whole thing of, will a thing always act in the best interest of mm. another thing? Yeah. Um, and you said, uh, no. Uh, later on, for example, Palmer uh, notices a thing and points it out to the others when it's not in their best interest to do so, and we know that they have to be the thing at that point. 
Yeah, yeah, the jig is up. You've uh, you figured me out. <laughs> and, and this, I believe, was the moment that you were talking about yeah, when he uh, n- notices the the head scuttling away. Absolutely, he says, "You've yeah. got to be fucking kidding." Yeah. The murdering of that thing ensues. So obviously, you know, he doesn't feel too much of an affection for the other lump of biomass. Yeah, or it's just, and I mean, I know we use this analogy a lot. It's just one of those kind of hidden role game mm. strategies of I'll try to make myself seem more plausible by betraying someone who I know is also evil, which is a legit thing that you can sometimes do in that game to make <laughs> to give yourself, give your team as the bad guys a better chance. Oh, don't look at me, guys. I'm not Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, let's get back to our Who's Infected tracker then. So at the moment, yeah. we've got Norris. So we know he's infected. Do we move him to the dead list? I guess so. I, I think we have to move him to the dead All list, right. yeah. Who's dead from being a thing? Norris. Norris. All right, we still think Blair is infected, but we haven't seen him in this section. I wonder what he's up to. Yeah. Your maybes are Windows, Knowles, Palmer, and Childs. Yeah. Um, You're going to want to shift Palmer onto the infected list? Uh, so I'm shipping... Um, shipping? I'm not shipping anyone. Um, <laughs> I, ship, I ship McCready and the thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm shifting Palmer into the infected list in that case. But I... I think I want to say that no one else in this room is currently the thing. Mm. I think it's now Palmer and um, Blair. Exactly. Yeah, Palmer and Blair are the thing, and nobody else is right. going to be my guess. So we're taking Windows, Knowles, and Childs from maybe to the not infected list. So you've got no maybes. Do I want to say no maybes? No, because I feel like everyone... Well, first of all, I feel like if this test is an accurate test, then it's going to immediately clear at least a couple of people. That's true. And then I feel like the people who are tied up to the chair next to Palmer have a genuine response (laughs) to what is about to happen, which I remember reasonably clearly, at least. Uh, I also am very confident because of forbidden future knowledge that Gary is not the thing at this point. So that's quite a memorable scene as well, unfortunately. Yes. So yeah, I think I think I do want to say that it's no one else. The only the only reason I'm slightly reluctant is because if Palmer is the only one infected here and they deal with Palmer does that mean that Blair is the only thing that is going to be left? And is that enough things to <laughs> bring us to the film's climax? I don't know. Well, remember, we do only have two more eight-minute sections with actual content. The last one is basically all credits, baby. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not 100% confident, but I'm going to tentatively say that it's just um, Blair and Palmer. That's who I'm saying. So we've got your infected list as Blair and Palmer, who's not infected, McCready, Gary, Windows, Knowles, and Childs, who's dead, Bennings and Fuchs, and to that list we are adding Copper and Clark, and who's dead from being a thing, Norris. There we go. The list is compiled and ready. At this point in the podcast, it behooves me 
to ask what you thought of the film so far. Yeah, as I say, so with this, uh, oh, we didn't decide what to call uh, our segments of the podcast. By the way, I know, I know that was that was sort of deliberate. Yeah, <laughs> you want to get I rid would, of that? I was so kill that. I don't know. I was so distressed by the word instance last time that I, yeah. I thought I thought maybe we could have one without it, so that you know, if someone just comes to this, we'll sound like two normal people recording a podcast rather than two lunatics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Given the concept, that may be like a big want, but... <laughs> so at this point in the podcast, it behooves me to ask you, what are you thinking of the film so far? Yeah, so uh, as I said, this whole section of the film, um, I find that there is more humour in this, perhaps intentionally, than certain other ones, even though it is one also one of the more horrifying moments of the film that we uh, had to date there's kind of a mixture there it's very interesting um and um it it i think it helps me enjoy it more to be honest um uh, because if it was just kind of grim bad things happening i think i'd maybe be a bit sad about this film at this point uh but um because there's this kind of mixture of these horrifying things happening, but also the thing's kind of goofy attempts to get away and preserve itself. Hmm. Um, I I just I, I find it quite enjoyable. I do think a good horror film does have some touches of comedy in it, hmm. because you can't just sort of have the continual ramping up of people's emotions, right? I, I mean, you, you obviously can, but those films tend to sort of be very bleak and full of despair almost always there you have to have a little touch of comedy just as a release valve because people will be getting tenser and tenser then something funny happens there's you know a moment of levity that sort of resets everybody yeah and it's back into the horror yeah i think there's i have a kind of i I guess it's a pet peeve of things like that are overly grim Mm. and just seem to be trying too hard to be grim and I, i don't think this film does that and uh, i like it more for that yeah uh, which is surprising considering some of the reviews at the time i mean again john carpenter ended up being called a pornographer of violence after this film um yes but yeah i mean like over time opinions have definitely mellowed towards it now it's just seen as like a sort of technically good creature feature rather than just an appalling film like i mean like I, I never really got on with the Saw franchise, you know, no. which, or, or Hostel, which are basically just torture porn. I'm not that into those things. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've never seen those, but uh, I haven't seen those because they have a certain reputation, and I'm ninety percent sure I would get very little out of watching them from what yeah. I've heard. I went to see the original Saw in the cinema. That is a hard sentence to say, and. There's a moment in the film that involves a saw, no spoilers. And uh, I looked across in the cinema and everyone just sort of was covering their face with their hands. I'm like, what? Uh, I don't know. This just feels grotesque to me. I yeah. don't know. If you ask me if I would like to see saw, then I'd have to reply, it depends what you mean. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> uh I think we'll have to leave the podcast on that pun now. <laughs> well, um, again, thank you for joining me for 
recording this slow descent into madness. Oh, earlier, at the, right at the start of this, I just forgot. You said, you know, uh, you, you were mocking me for watching the thing, you know, three to four times a day. Mm-hmm. And, do you know, since we've started recording this, the amount I've watched it has gone very far down. <laughs> Right. Well, maybe, maybe like me, because I I have obviously not watched the the film through at all since we started recording this. Maybe just like me, you're trying to keep your ideas a bit fresher by refraining from watching it uh, yeah. so much. I mean, that that might be it. I have I have thought of watching it once or twice, and I'm like, no, maybe I shouldn't. And I'm like, it is probably just so that I uh, I'm more fresh for those last few scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, thank you for joining me for this extended madness. Uh, I look forward to working with you again next time. Uh, Yes, and shall we uh, talk about where we can find each other on the internet? Oh, Christ, I forgot that bit. I I, I need to write that in my notes so that we actually do it. Yeah, he he can be found on the internet. His his handle is KestrelPie. That's Kestrel like the bird and pie like the pie. Irrational number pie. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Food. Yeah, no, I got distracted because I was thinking about pie because I'm hungry. Mm. (laughs) And um, Kieran can be found on the internet uh, via the handle pie monster. That's pie like the food. Um, No, sorry, that's wrong. Um, (laughs) It's uh, Kieran J. Walsh on Twitter and things like that. That's true. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye.